History and current events program from a cultural perspective. We find this program necessary because Hosea 4 6 states, My people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge. But we as a people will turn this around. Proverbs 4 7 states, Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom with all that getting, get an understanding. Again, welcome to the program this evening with your hosts, Brother Elliot and Brother Richard. The number to reach us to join the conversation this evening is 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. We're streaming live at several locations. You can go to timeforanawakening.com, which is the homepage, and catch the live stream. At that location, you can go to www.blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash time for an awakening. Again, that's www.blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash Time for an awakening and catch the live stream there also. You can go to a bb2me.com. That's A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I.com forward slash time for an awakening. They stream from Ghana. Or you can download the TuneIn radio app to any of your devices. TuneIn is a free app. In that TuneIn search engine, just type in time for an awakening there. You'll see the icon and you can stream the program live. Even into your car, if you had the Bluetooth capabilities or the auxiliary connection, again, that's time for an awakening radio program with the live stream on the TuneIn app. Drop us an email at time for an awakening at gmail.com. Again, that's time for an awakening at gmail.com. Time for an awakening also has a fan page on Facebook and that Facebook search engine. Just type in time for an awakening radio program. There you always see interesting content being posted daily by myself or Brother Richard. And do me a favor before you leave that page, just hit, just hit that like button. It's time for an awakening radio program with the fan page on Facebook and time for an awakening media is also there. Always for the latest podcast of the various programs on time for an awakening media, interesting articles that you can read, download at later times and share with your friends. Also check out that time for an awakening marketplace in our partnership with the BB to me. Always interesting things in the marketplace all the time. Various African language classes, classes on education, economics, social systems, health, and much, much more being taught by professors on both the continent and the diaspora. So, again, make that one of your favorites. Put that in your address bar. That's timeforanawakening.com. Timeforanawakening.com will take you straight to Time for an Awakening Media. It's 7.06 here in the city of Philadelphia on this Sunday edition of Time for an Awakening. Our special guest this evening, activist, organizer, and co-founder and executive director of the Friends of the Congo, Brother Maurice Carney, is with us this evening. And we'll be in discussion, and it might veer off into various elements of this conversation. Uh, the new 
U.S. strategy towards sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, it should be important to all of us. Uh, the U.S. The U.S. says it, it represents a reframing of Africa's importance to U.S. interest. And for us, is it the U.S. and its European allies' 21st century form of neocolonialism? We'll get into that and other things with our guest this evening, activist, organizer, and co-founder of the executive director of the Friends of the Congo, Maurice Carney. We'll be right back to get the program started after a brief word from our sponsors. Our distinguished guests, brothers and sisters, our friends and and our enemies. Everybody is here. You are listening to Time for an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts or live programming, hit them up at timeforanawakening.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American owned and operated insurance agency in business for over 20 years, located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowners insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services, representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies, offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 21 215- 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. Dooley Brothers, specializing in shingle, rubber roofs, gutters, downspouts, and vinyl sidings. Call for your free estimate today, 215-224-3882. That's 215-224-3882. Dooley Brothers Roofing, the roofing experts you can trust. That number again, 215-224-3882. 215-224-3882. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. RG Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter, serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today, 484-268-9837. Overworked? Suffering with an underperforming company, headache customer, staff, or vendors? Or are you a startup who wants to get it right the first time and avoid the costly mistakes? We turned a $24,000 a year odd job handyman service into a seven-figure high-end custom home builder and commercial contractor licensed and operating in three states. This is just one transformation created for entrepreneurs like you in various industries around the country. Not what you're used to from accounting and business consulting? Well, welcome to New Business Solutions. If you're ready to go beyond advising, coaching, and training and get implemented results, call 301-244-9072. Let New Business Solutions apply the best comprehensive administrative, accounting, operations, human resources, management, sales, and marketing to help you actualize your vision for yourself and your company. From anywhere nationally, call 301-244-9072. Spelled new as in numerous on your device right now. Book your free consultation at newbusinesssolutions.com. 
History is a clock that people use to tell their political and cultural time of day. It is also a compass that people use to find themselves on the map of human geography. History tells of people where they have been and what they have been, where they are and what they are. Most important, history tells a people where they still must go, what they still must be. The relationship of history to the people is the same as the relationship of a mother to her child. From antiquity to the present, our people need to develop a new paradigm. It's time for an awakening with your host, Brother Elliot. Sundays, 7 p.m., Fridays at 8 p.m. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit us up at Time for an Awakening at gmail.com. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening. It's uh, 7-12 here in the city of Philadelphia on this Sunday edition of Time for an Awakening. Before we get started with our program this evening, I want to welcome in my co-host, Philadelphia activist and tour guide at the African American Museum here in Philadelphia at 7th and Art Street. Brother Richard is with us. Brother Richard. Yes, sir, Brother Ellie. How are you, sir? Uh, today I'm doing right. It's raining outside, but, you know, I think it's, um, you know, it, it, it gave me a, a moment to uh, rest and, and, and do some reflection. But I'm really um, glad that um, Brother Maurice is with us to kind of continue to expand on our, I call it our, our grown-up politics, right? Um, power politics as it deals with our African um, brothers and sisters on the continent and our relationship to that and being in the U.S. And what does this here uh, American foreign policy as it relates to Africa um, mean to us or should mean to us? And I'm glad to, that we're going to engage in this discussion. You know, I was uh, uh, talking with uh, our friend Obi Egbona Jr. Um, about the article that I read in Black Agenda Report about the gathering uh, outside of Washington, D.C., uh, with some of the African countries that was involved in uh, trying to chart a new direction uh, and talking about the this new policy that the United States wants to implement, implement and how Africans on the continent see it. And I mentioned to him that uh, I was reading some quotes from a, a brother, Maurice Carney, and he said, well, he's a friend of mine. <laughs> and so... And I should have expected that, Richard, because, I mean, Obi, he's come from a family of activists. He was raised in being an activist, so it only stands to reason that he know other brothers that are, that are active out here and doing some things. So I'm glad that he uh, kind of pointed us in Brother Connie's direction so we can get some insight on not only what's going on in the continent, but how it should, how we should be looking at it here in the diaspora, which is really important. Richard, before we... Um, before I introduce our guest, uh, you said that you had a clip that you wanted to kind of use to kind of set the tone for some of the discussions we'll be having this evening. Um, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, and it, and it's two. And I, um, you know, our, our other um, good brother, um, Professor Henderson, um, did with um, did a presentation at a symposium on reshaping U.S. Africa policy and the role of HBCUs um, last year. And I thought his context plus um, you know, I, you know, I got on as we since we interviewed him and and became in dialogue with him around his other book. 
I've been um, looking through his book, African Realism, International Relations Theory and the African Wars in the Postcolonial Era, which defines um, international relationships. So I wanted to um, set the context of our discussion with him and also um, with Brother um, um, from, I believe he's from Kenya, um, Professor um, P.L.O. Lumbumba, um, who did um, a presentation um, this year on, in Rwanda, the Rwanda National Police College. And I thought his context, and the, and, and the combination of them wouldn't be no more than like three to four minutes, but I thought that they set the context of, as it relates to um, America's foreign policy, how we should look at what their policy construction is and how um, the continent um, and leaders in the continent should be understanding in relationship to what they're calling now um, possibly Cold War 2.0. So I'll just play those, um, and then we can move into the discussion um, in that sense. I'll start with um, 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 Professor Henderson. Rigid. Is it coming through? No. No? No. Oh, man. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, let me try it. Oh, man, I don't know what. Um, yeah, my mic is open. And last time it came through, so I don't know what happened this time. Oh, okay. Let me try the other one and see if that comes through. No, that's not coming through either. You sure the audio's not muted on the clip? Uh, no, no. That, I mean, I I hear them. They're not open. Yeah, they're open. It's not. Oh, I guess we just have to, because I didn't, I didn't download them, but. Um, I thought they would come through. I'll leave it. I'll leave it. At, I apologize. Um, I thought we would be able to, to hear those two, but it didn't come through. So I'll just, I guess we can just open with um, Brother Kearney and since and maybe figure out, I can figure out how to, to play them. Yeah. Well, maybe during our break or something, you can uh, kind of get it back up. Um, yeah. Right now we'll introduce activist organizing co-founder of the, and exec, executive director of the friends of the condo brother. Brother Maurice Carney is with us. Brother Maurice, how are you, sir? Uh, I'm doing great. Great, thanks. Uh, how are both of you doing? Great, and good to have you with us on Time for an Awakening with myself and Brother Richard. Yes, sir. It's a pleasure to be on with both of you. Brother Carney, uh, listen, before we start talking about uh, uh, domestic, I guess if you're here on, on in the continental United States, it's domestic policy. That'll lead to foreign policy, and if you're on the continent, it might be the opposite. But let's before we start talking about some of this and how it really affects us, and how we should look at it, whether we're on the continent or in the diaspora. Uh, talk a little bit about uh, yourself as an activist. Um, as I mentioned before, you came on, uh, brother Obi Bona gave me your number. So uh, listen, it, it, he's he's come from he was raised as an activist. He come from an activist background, right, right, but, right. But talk about, yeah, yeah. His he has a genealogy of activism. Exactly, uh, his father, no doubt. Uh, so he he's a very very dear friend of mine. Yeah. But talk talk about yeah. yourself a little bit, and uh... actually, I connected with Obi and I first connected with around the organizing of the Million Man March. Uh, we we're both youth organizers in the Million Man March. Uh, as we've been rolling, uh, you know, together ever since. Now, brother Connor, your uh, audio, activist, my, your audio you? is just a little bit garbled. Um, yeah, is that a little better? Is that a little better? Oh, that's that's tons better. Okay, good, good, good. Yeah. So, uh, as I was saying, uh, 
Uh, Obi and I first connected uh, during the Million Man March as, uh, as youth organizers. Okay. And we've been uh, rolling uh, as comrades uh, ever since uh, uh, that time. Uh, my activism uh, came much later than his, uh, of course. Uh, I really have to attribute it uh, to my tenure at, uh, at Grambling State University. Uh, that's when I uh, first uh, really started to, to be engaged uh, in studying uh, our history as a people uh, in depth. Uh, had a history professor there that uh, introduced me to uh, comedic uh, civilization. And uh, ever since that time, uh, we went from the uh, studying of our uh, history and uh, heritage to the point of actually wanting to transform that study into, into action. Uh, and that probably came to fruition uh, it's, um, I guess, the most acute way uh, during the early 1990s when uh, I was part of a study group uh, in Washington, D.C. called uh, Tuamoja. And as you know, in the early 1990s, following uh, the trips of uh, Asa Hilliard, Marlana Karinga, and uh, those figures to, to Kemet, uh, what came out of that was a burgeoning of study groups and two Moja was uh, one of those groups. And we we're of course based in Washington, DC. And even though we were studying history, learning about ourselves, uh, we felt that there was more that we could, we could do. And so we started organizing tours at uh, the natural museum of history in, in Washington and armed with, uh, the works of uh, Geop and Finch and Hilliard and Clark, uh, we went into the museum and just started exposing the uh, incredible tales that were, they were telling about Africans from a uh, prehistoric uh, period right to the, to the present. Uh, and we uh, did it in such a way that uh, the museum ultimately had to um, to shut down its uh, its African hall, and uh, we were able to bring in Dr. Finch and others to um, to sit down with them to discuss what would go there in its stead in terms of uh, accurately representing our um, our heritage uh, from uh, prehistoric times uh, right to the to the present. And so it's in Grambling University. Uh, my tenure at uh, uh, there at the university, and then uh, my engagement with uh, Tuamoja study group. And something happened when I was in Tuamoja that was on the political um, side that dealt with it was a Rwandan genocide that occurred. And at the, while we were in DC, uh, when Africans would uh, continental Africans would come to DC. We would always try and connect with them and route them towards uh, the community. Because mm -hmm. the U.S. Uh, establishment, it has programs where it uh, brings Africans, young Africans from throughout the continent, 
to come to the U.S. and teach them about democracy and uh, civil society and 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 all. And they they are almost always uh, seem to skirt the black community. So we had a sister on the inside who would channel those young Africans to us to, to us in the community, and we would engage them and uh, establish ties with them. And uh, one brother that uh, we had connected with was from uh, Rwanda. And during the genocide, he was, um, you know, hitting us up on the phone, letting us know what's going on, and just really crying out for, for help. Uh, so at that time, it, it really, we tried to move Tuamoja into uh, action around politics. And, and I believe uh, Senator Paul Simon out of Illinois was the chairman of the Senate uh, Foreign Relations Committee, I believe. And so we started letter writing campaigns and just really getting more active politically, especially as it relates to uh, contemporary U.S. foreign policy and the uh, African continent. Uh, we felt, okay, uh, we're studying our history, learning about antiquity, learning about great African civilizations, but what are we doing today, you know, in terms of concrete actions and organizing uh, around the continent with their brothers and sisters there. Uh, that ultimately uh, led me to, uh, uh, actually, I should say, while I was, um, we were in the study groups, we, we, we went in depth on, on Malcolm X. And something struck me about uh, Malcolm and his relationship with uh, Africa in general and Congo and Lumumba in particular, uh, in that if you if you listen to Malcolm's speeches, he almost always mentioned Congo and Lumumba uh, when he when he spoke about the continent. Okay. And in fact, even his discourse and his debate at uh, Oxford, uh, I think he spent a good nine ten minutes on it, talking about uh, Congo and Lumumba and Chombe. Uh, and uh, Malcolm centered the, the Congo in a way that I thought was uh, peculiar. Uh, so that led me to want to learn more about why it is that, that he was centering the, uh, the Congo in the way that he did. And the more uh, I delved into it in terms of the research, I found that he wasn't uh, you know, the only one. If you look at uh, the great revolutionaries uh, the past 50 years or so, uh, they almost always centered um, the Congo, had something to say about it. Uh, uh, Fanon himself, you know, he said the, the fate of all of us uh, is at stake in the Congo in his uh, book, African Revolutions. Uh, and Krumah went so far as to write... Uh, an entire book about the Congo entitled The Challenge of the Congo, where Congo, he located Congo's centrality to his project of the United States of Africa, where Congo would serve as the capital and the industrial and economic engine for the development of the African continent. Uh, and his Federated States of Africa did the same thing, talk about the prowess of the, the Congo and if maximized what that would do uh, for uh, the continent as a whole. Uh, even in Che Guevara's diaries, he saw uh, Congo as the front lines in the anti-colonial movement. Uh, 
So he in, in 65, he actually, 1965, he actually went there uh, to fight with, uh, with the Congolese. And, you know, he boldly articulated that uh, Congo's problem is not just a Congolese problem, but it's a worldwide problem. So you have all these uh, uh, revolutionaries, uh, freedom fighters centering the Congo. So that led me to uh, seek out, uh, delve more into into the Congo and research more. And uh, my comrades in the study group were uh, aware of my increased interest in the Congo. So this one brother said, I I got to introduce you to this Congolese scientist. He was, at the time, he was working at the National Institutes of Health up there in uh, in Bethesda in, in Maryland. So I was like, yes, let's, let's do that. I definitely want to connect with them. And uh, when I connected with them, I connected with them at a, at a time when uh, actually we were doing follow-up work uh, around the Million Man March because we're like, okay, we had the, the march, the stay-at-home uh, day. Uh, so what's next, you know? Uh, so a number of, uh, as you, you may recall, there people from different cities that are initiating a whole bunch of local initiatives, local yes. efforts. Yes. And we have connected with some uh, uh, other brothers and sisters, and we thought what we would do was uh, establish what we call the uh, Million March Radio Network. It would be a satellite uh, radio network that would cover the entirety of the, of the U.S., and we'd basically upload the actions that are taking place in different parts of the country. So we had um, set up a, a satellite radio network and were broadcasting out of, uh, out of D.C. at the, at the um, a national public uh, radio uh, right up there on, uh, at American University. And people were down, down, downloading or downlinking the, the program to their local communities. And we tried to get uh, Brother Chavis and, of course, Minister Farrakhan and all uh, engaged in supporting uh, the effort, which which they did. Uh, so in building that out, uh, a Congolese friend of mine was uh, particular, the, the gentleman I met at the NIH, who uh, ultimately became my friend and a mentor, uh, he invested in the effort. And uh, I thought that was uh, uh, quite a gesture. Uh, considering that he was uh, focused on the Congo, and but then it was Zaire, and Mobutu was uh, the U.S.-backed dictator in place. And, you know, he was doing a lot of organizing around that. Uh, so I thought uh, he had, with his having the sensibility to recognize the significance of uh, Africans organizing here in the United States, uh, that really struck me. And from that point on, uh, we developed a relationship um, to the point where I uh, became really strong comrades and I got even more in-depth information about uh, the significance of the Congo uh, to contemporary uh, African revolution. And not only that, uh, but also the importance of the Congo to the 500-year from a quote, uh, our sister Marimba Ani Maafa, uh, the centrality of the Congo in that experience. Because that's what we're living right now, with what we're 
the period in which we're living is a product of 500 years of extraction, plunder, and theft by Europe uh, from Africa, uh, beginning with the theft of Africans that were brought to the Americas in order for the Americas, particularly the United States, to develop, industrialize, and uh, become an advanced capitalist state. That couldn't happen without the extraction and theft and trafficking of Africans. Uh, Eric Williams' uh, book, you're listening on, is probably familiar with capitalism, slavery, lays that out in painstaking detail. However, what uh, uh, a lot of people may not know, four out of every 10 Africans that were trafficked to the Americas came out of the Congo region. Uh, at that time, we're talking about parts of Gabon, modern-day Gabon, Central African Republic, uh, Republic of Congo, uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, Angola, that whole swath of, uh, of land that stretches from Angola right on up. Uh, we're often uh, led to believe that uh, most Africans came out of West Africa, but the Congo region, Central Africa, four out of every ten. So you find Congo empire or civilization presence uh, throughout the Americas. If you look at that, Dr. Sheila Walker and her work, or Dr. Dawson, uh, who's former head of the Schomburg Center, and the work that he's done uh, lays that out in, uh, in detail. So that uh, experience, uh, 500 years of onslaught on Africans, which continues uh, to this very day, uh, we, we see the centrality of the Congo, starting with the extraction of uh, human beings, of Africans. And even in the, the second major encroachment within that 500-year period on the African continent, uh, which came a few hundred, uh, which came a few hundred years after the uh, initiation of the so-called transatlantic slave trade, uh, the 1884-1885 Berlin Conference, where European powers decided that uh, there was such a great pie, as they call it, in Africa, that they would cease fighting each other for this pie and sit down around a table uh, in Berlin, um, which they call the Berlin Conference, or it's otherwise known as the Congo Conference as well. And out of that, Congo was central again, in that Congo wasn't given to any one nation. Uh, it was seen as a space that any European nation can travel freely, move freely, uh, trade freely, uh, and because it was so big, such a huge prize, uh, they felt that they wouldn't colonize it, but instead gave it to King Leopold II of Belgium as his own private property. Uh, and incidentally, the United States government was the first government in the world to recognize the ownership of Congo under King Leopold II of Belgium. Yes. Meanwhile, all this time, <laughs> they refused, adamantly refused, to recognize the first liberated so-called slave state in Haiti, 
some six decades on uh, after the uh, Haitian Revolution, the United States still didn't recognize it, but they recognized uh, Congo, the so-called Congo Free State under the ownership of King Leopold II. So that's uh, a brief introduction as to how I uh, have arrived at where I am today in terms of my uh, work and uh, organizing with friends of the Congo and our brothers and sisters uh, in the Congo in particular, but really uh, throughout the African continent and the, and the African world. Uh, Brother, Brother Connie, you mentioned uh, Leopold, and, and when you when <clears throat> when they talk about human atrocities that happened on this planet, uh, people mention a lot of people's names, Hitler and others, but his name, Leopold, is never really mentioned. But the atrocities, no, the human yeah. atrocities that was committed by that animal is, is almost unfathomable. But I don't want to necessarily talk about him. Let's right. talk about the situation because, you know, when you look at the human body and you almost go to the central spot, it's your heart that's there. Your heart yes. kind of makes everything go. And if you look at the continent of Africa, the Congo region sits almost as the heart of the continent. And if you look yeah. at this world, um, and I was just d- doing a little cursory search, 55% of the diamonds and gold comes out of that region. 70% mm-hmm. of the world's cobalt that they use in cell phones, copper, uh, the lithium, the manganese comes out of that region. But what we see here in the United States is always a war-torn area, uh, uh, mm-hmm. people in disarray, uh, 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 people in distress, but nothing seems to stop the flow of these raw materials coming out of these countries. And right. now we see this new U.S. Uh, policy towards sub-Saharan mm. Africa. How should we look at this and, 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 and talk briefly about uh, the different raw materials that come out of there, and especially now with the advent. Uh, you know, it was a bunch of raw materials coming out of there before they created these cell phones and laptops. Right. But now with the advent of all of these different cell phones, every time you look, it's a new one coming out every two months. Talk about the importance mm-hmm. of that area and how we should look at this. Sure. And with uh, Biden's strategy uh, for... I guess he calls it the White House as sub-Saharan Africa. You know, Van Sertima taught us that uh, the Sahara has never divided the African continent, that the Sahara was a space uh, for trade and travel. And so this characterization of the continent as uh, being divided where you have those who were on one side of the Sahara and those who are on the other side of the Sahara is a wholly a, a Western fabrication. Okay. Um, from north to south, the, uh, you know, from Algeria, Morocco, Tunisia, all the way down to Cape of Good Hope in South Africa, their members, 54 members of the African Union. So it's one African continent. Um, but by Biden's um, 
strategy is where he lays out four key points of engagement for the African continent. That's fundamentally different from Trump's strategy that he laid out prosper, so-called prosper Africa. And really, when it comes to U.S. foreign policy in general and U.S. foreign policy in Africa in particular, it really doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or Republican. <laughs> the U.S. foreign policy establishment, the elite establishment, uh, pretty much, you know, sing to the same tune uh, where the United States seeks full-spectrum domination throughout the globe. Uh, with some 800 or so military bases around the planet. You know, the Africa Command, which was came out of the Heritage Foundation conceptually, uh, which is uh, life was breathed into by Donald Rumsfeld and George Bush 2007 and officially in 2008 was picked up by Barack Obama, a Democrat. He wasn't a Republican. And he expanded Africa by some 2,000% from 2008, you know, right through to 2016. That's a, not only a Democratic president, but a black one at that. And it was Africa that joined in cahoots with NATO uh, with a strong pushing on the part of Sarkozy of France to overthrow and assassinate Muammar Gaddafi. Uh, Libya uh, was, uh, at the time, the strongest pr proponent for pan-African unity, a unified um, African continent, not just in theory, but in practice, in terms of his being the biggest donor to the African Union and his investing, his nation investing in other African nations and wanting to establish a uh, continental currency, yes. wanting to establish a continental telecommunications network. Uh, so when it comes to, to U.S. foreign policy, there isn't a fundamental difference between the Republicans and the Democrats between a Trump and a, and a Biden. And what we're seeing in Africa today is not starkly different from what we've seen over the past 500 years, where Africa is seen as an outpost for the extraction of strategic and precious resources, whether they be human or natural resources, and the playground for so-called great powers, where the resources of the, the continent are used for the development of other nations. Uh, so if you just take a cursory look at what's unfolding today, especially as we uh, come into the next U.S.-African Leadership Summit that's going to be taking place in December in mm -hmm. Washington, D.C., mm -hmm. you find that there are coterie of nations that have Africa summits, whether you're talking about Turkey, Russia, India, China, Italy, Japan, United Kingdom, you name it. If you just look over the last few, few years or so, 
you see that there is this thirst uh, for Africa's riches. And the U.S., of course, uh, is no exception. That's why, uh, in part, AFRICOM was developed uh, because U.S. sees China and Russia as competitors uh, for resources on the continent, competitors for uh, diplomatic capital in terms of votes that may be needed at the U.N. Uh, for whatever the strategic interests of these great powers are. So you see the United States not being able to compete with China economically, especially through its Belt and Road Initiative. It's a mineral for infrastructure swaps where China offers roads, hospitals, uh, other rail, other infrastructure in exchange for uh, natural resources on the, on the continent. The U.S., neither U.S. nor Europe can compete. So we see the U.S. and France in particular uh, leaning on what it uh, uses most and knows best, and that's force and military, and establishing military presence throughout the continent, uh, in part as a means to, to combat uh, certainly China and uh, of late uh, Russian uh, increased uh, expansion on the African continent uh, as well. So the, the lens through which uh, the, we should understand the Biden strategy or, or at least begin to analyze the Biden strategy is that objectification of Africa, where Africa is seen as a playground for great powers and U.S. seeing how we can leverage particularly its military might, uh, not to discount its so-called soft power uh, as well. We're talking about its National Democratic Institute, uh, International Republican Institute, National Endowment for Democracy, USAID, all these uh, other entities that are used to influence and curry favor on the African continent for the benefit of uh, of the uh, United States government. What we, uh, as Africans in the Americas and in the United States, uh, should be focused on is how is it that we can engage Africans on the continent that uh, have their eyes and have a vision uh, that's consistent and building on the vision of the Kwame Nkrumahs of Ghana and the Patrice Lumumba's of the Congo, uh, Secretaries of of Guinea, uh, Modibe Keita's of Mali, uh, the Thomas Sankara's of Burkina Faso. How is it that we're going to engage our brothers and sisters, um, both in terms of support on the continent and also in challenging U.S. foreign policy, first by demystifying it, uh, as we're doing tonight, breaking it down on the on the show, and then um, certainly by educating the masses of uh, Africans in the United States so that they're not uh, confused about what Africa has to offer to the world, that it's not a conflict-ridden continent and it's not a poor continent, but a continent in which conflicts have been imposed on the people, a continent... Uh, that has been impoverished. Highly recommend that uh, everybody reads uh, how 
Europe Underdeveloped Africa by Walter Rodney. Uh, he lays it out in painstaking detail the extent to which Europe is developed because it underdeveloped an African continent. So uh, that would that should be our beginning of the analysis of uh, the White House's uh, latest strategy um, document on the uh, on the uh, on Africa. Now you spoke a little bit about the the natural resources out of the Congo. Uh, the Congo is just filled with tremendous strategic and precious resources. Uh, and in fact, over the last 125 years or so, if you were to follow the advancements, technological advancements, uh, some of them anyways, of the, of the West, you'll see that they're connected to the, to the Congo. And what uh, the dynamic that unfolds is that the West advances in technology and Congolese perish. That's been the formula for the past 125, 130 years or so, from 1885 to 1908, 23-year period where King Leopold II extracted rubber from the Congo. There's an estimated 10 to 15 million Congolese that perished, while that rubber served as a critical element for not only bicycle tires, but automobile tires. So the auto industry benefited and advanced while Congolese perished. In World War II, when the United States, through its Manhattan Project, developed its atomic weapons that ultimately were dropped in Japan, the bulk of the uranium came out of the, the Congo. Uh, some of it came out of Canada, but uh, the most and uh, uh, most uh, enriched or valuable came out of the, out of the Congo. Uh, and we fast forward to today, where we have advances in uh, technology tools like our cell phones. Uh, we find coltan coming out of the Congo, which is key to the functioning of our cell phones and other electronic devices. Coltan is a colloquial term for columbite tantalite, uh, which is, uh, has properties of its heat resistance and it retains charge uh, in an exceptional way. Uh, that's why you see we're able to have smaller devices, but they're more powerful. There's one time, there's a time when cell phones, for example, you held them to your, they were huge. <laughs> you held them to your hair, hair too long, then you know heat up. Uh, so coltan and the capacitors in coltan uh, help to address that uh, that issue, where you can now have uh, smaller devices and they're more powerful. In fact, one U.S. senator said that. Every American has at least one device in which Coltan is found. <laughs> and now, beyond the technology industry, we see the auto industry uh, in pursuit of Congo's cobalt. And if you had, add up all the countries in the world and the, the cobalt they produce, they do not equal the cobalt that Congo alone produces. And co there is no electric car industry without cobalt. There is no green energy sector for your solar cells and batteries uh, without cobalt. Cobalt is needed for the batteries in, their, in our cell phones and our uh, iPads and, and so forth. But uh, the electric car industry is uh, a key 
consumer of cobalt. There is no Tesla without cobalt. Uh, no uh, Elon Musk and his incredible wealth uh, without uh, the agreement that he has with a mining company, uh, Glencore, to extract cobalt from the Congo. So these are just some of the minerals that are just vital uh, to Western industries and uh, the way of life uh, for those of us who, who live, uh, live on the, uh, in the West. Good. And there are just so many more, but, uh, that to respond to your question, uh, those are some of the key resources and how we're connected to them and why, uh, Congo is so important. Richard, uh, jump in here because, uh, <laughs> a brother Khan, he said that, um, this Biden policy is not not hardly any different than Trump's policy, uh, and you you know that Trump uh, called uh, African countries shithole countries. So you know that yeah. that that feeling of Europeans about <laughs> our mother continent really hasn't changed. It's just that Biden is a little more diplomatic than uh, Trump was. But let's look at uh, uh, Richard uh, jumping yeah, here. Trump Trump is Trump is vulgar compared to Biden. Biden may be seen as sophisticated. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Richard. I think Malcolm addressed the differences between those two different types of Europeans. Yes, yes. As you, as you laid out, you know, um, very powerfully and very thoroughly a, you know, a historical context that we should be looking at, you know, from the, from the center of Congo, the Congo as the center as we look at, you know, foreign policy. And let's, let's be, um, and, and maybe I might be misspeaking, but let's be clear. We're not talking about foreign policy. We're talking about war strategy, right? Um, when we're looking at foreign policy and the U.S. policy as it's developed. But one thing that struck me, when, um, and I wanted you to um, zero in, and when they're now being talk about this being um, the second Cold War, um, because of, you know, the elements that you laid out in relationship to China and Russia from the, um, the, the, during the first Cold War, I wanted to see if you can give us, um, also some historical perspective that shows that not just the business interests, but the mil- the U.S. military interests and what they did, especially when we talk about, um, um, Patrice Lumumba. Um, can you can you flush out for us um, how you see um, U.S. foreign policy during that first Cold War and and the involvement it was in relationship to um, um, Patrice Lumumba? Sure, sure. Thanks for that question. The so-called we say the so-called Cold War because it definitely wasn't cold in Africa and. Latin America and the Global South, it was hot uh, with the CIA and its covert actions, uh, overthrowing governments, assassinating leaders. And Congo is emblematic of that. Uh, In fact, the U.S. State Department uh, published uh, declassified documents on covert war in the Congo uh, from 1960 to about 68 or so. And at the time, uh, the largest covert war in terms of covert action, in terms of financing in the 60s, was in the Congo. And uh, the Central Intelligence Agency went in 
and overthrew the democratically elected prime minister, Patrice Lumumba. Uh, he was inaugurated on June 30th, 1960, and by July 12th, there were... Uh, moves on the part of the Central Intelligence Agency uh, to disrupt, dismantle this nascent democratic uh, administration. Uh, in fact, the chief of station of the CIA, Larry Devlin, uh, he wrote a book about how he overthrew Lumumba, uh, entitled it uh, Chief of Station Congo, and uh, he laid out why he had to overthrow Lumumba, overthrow Lumumba. He said, if we didn't overthrow Lumumba, I said, Devlin, not only would we have lost the Congo, but we would have lost all of Africa. So the U.S. government saw the control or the destabilizing of uh, Congo as central to uh, staunching the advancement of, the, of Africa as a whole. So Lumumba was overthrown and ultimately assassinated uh, with the collaboration of the Belgians, the British, uh, the United Nations, and the U.S. was on the forefront uh, on January 17, 1961. But it wasn't sufficient for the U.S. to overthrow and then assassinate uh, Lumumba. But what they did, uh, and this is all according to their, the U.S. own documents, and the published documents by the U.S. State Department uh, a few years back, uh, that they, they installed uh, a dictatorship in the Congo in Joseph Desiree Mobutu. And not only did they install that dictatorship, um, but they also maintained it for over three decades. That is to say that every time Congolese would rise up to get rid of Mobutu, the U.S. would intervene to, to squash uh, the uprisings or the rebellion. Um, so the blueprint that we see in the, in the Congo is not fundamentally different from other parts of the global south, uh, whether we're talking about overthrow of Mokadesh in, in Iran, the 50s, uh, our bands in Guatemala or uh, Allende in Chile, we see that war strategy that you talk about, Brother Richard, uh, being achieved through uh, coups and assassinations, overthrow democratically elected governments. And uh, the condition that we see the Congo in today, the, where you have 70% of the population living on less than $2 a, a day, less than 7% of the population having access to uh, elect, uh, electricity, the incessant conflicts that we see in the east of the country that's sponsored by U.S. Uh, allies uh, and the U.S. agents of imperialism, Paul Kagame of Rwanda and Yawi Museveni of Uganda, and lay squarely, squarely at the foot of the U.S. government and the destructive uh, half-a-century role that it has played uh, in the Congo and the Great Lakes region of, of Africa. So, so that, that, that history uh, is not just history, but it's a part of contemporary Congolese and African life, and uh, the United States has not uh, atoned for, for that at all.
It's in, in, in your, as you were explaining it, the um, thought came because I'm looking at this article and we're talking about um, military involvement and you made reference to the countries that are, are, are there. And in, and in this article, um, you know, Africa cannot afford, and I do respect um, the point that you make that it isn't a cold war at that point. And I don't think, I, I don't think in relationship to the global South, things has changed now when we look at what's going on in um, South America, in the Caribbean, you know, in, in different movements for at least a certain control of sovereignty and, and not yeah. necessarily independence, but uh, sovereignty and, and how that's playing out. But it said that at least 13 foreign powers currently maintain some kind of military outposts on the continent. Belgium, China, France, Germany, India, Italy, Japan, Russia, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, and the United Arab Republic, the UK, and the US. So um, I think that when we talk about these minerals um, and we talk about, um, you know, the Congo being central um, to other areas um, in, in, as far as where it sits on the continent, um, mm-hmm. a lot of these countries have something to do. And, and again, our relationship here in relationship to um, putting on our big boy britches in relationship to understanding as you, as you so well um, develop our, as African-Americans, our influence, if not mm-hmm. our impact should be in relationship to um, alleviating some of these challenges. One thing that I, um, I think that we want, I wanted to see can be um, brought up. Um, you mentioned, you know, in the example of earlier and, and the CIA and their involvement um, with Patricia Lumumba, um, when um, resistance um, groups um, started to af- occur. I assume that's occurring now, that there are, um, and, and you being, you know, a part of an organization that is providing us with the information and support, there are resistance groups that are, are, are formulating, say, in the Congo, and it's everywhere. Um, oh, is right. the United States um, um, dealing with that, and how is it um, dealing with the support um, to uh, curtail or suppress that resistance, say, in the Congo? Yeah, well, the resistance uh, is definitely uh, unfolding in the Congo, uh, particularly uh, among uh, its youth, hmm. uh, which is not uh, different from the continent as a whole. When we look at the continent, we're really speaking of a continent right. of, of teenagers, right? Uh, the median age in the Congo is 17. The uh, majority of the... Uh, Brother, population on the African continent are youth. Brother Connie. I, yes, sir. L- l- I don't want to cut you. Uh, I, no, no, no. You do. This uh, is what I want to say, because I want you to reiterate this. Because the image that we get in this Western press is that, you know, the, the continent is in disarray. But when you said that resistance is growing, especially from the youth, please drive that home. Because me and Richard talk about this, but we don't talk about it from a perspective of somebody that's there and knows or has been there and knows. Just, just repeat that again. Yeah, uh, without a doubt. I mean, there are just so many uh, examples uh, of it throughout the, uh, the continent. Uh, one of the uh, chief 
uh, head Negroes, I guess you can call them, in West Africa, uh, was Blaise uh, Compare, who was responsible for uh, the death of uh, Thomas uh, Sankara, and who served uh, dutifully the interests of France and the United States. Uh, he was overthrown by a youth movement, uh, a movement led by youth, not solely by youth, but the youth were at the forefront of uh, removing him from uh, from power. Uh, when we see in Senegal the same thing, uh, Senegalese youth organizing uh, uh, resistance uh, around uh, politics uh, there in, in Senegal and, and in the Congo itself. Uh, we uh, produced a film, uh, or not produced a film, I'm sorry, we were party to a film called Kinshasa Makambo, which documented uh, is done by Diodo Hamdi, an up-and-coming uh, Congolese filmmaker who's a youth himself, documented uh, the resistance among urban youth in Kinshasa in trying to uh, remove from power a U.S.-backed, sponsored, supported leader. Uh, at that time was Joseph uh, Kabila. What the, the United States, in terms of trying to um, well, the youth, the revolutionary youth uh, movement. Uh, I mean, I, I also got to mention the economic freedom fighters in South Africa. And Julius Malema is a youth-led group challenging um, the African National Congress. With the United States, uh, what it has done in order to try and uh, blunt uh, the revolutionary youth movements on the continent is to embrace the youth. Uh, and uh, the, uh, uh, Obama himself developed uh, an initiative uh, for African youth where he'd identify thousands of African youth and bring them to the United States in order to uh, embrace them, uh, entice them, and... <laughs> really blunt uh, the energy of the youth and turn them towards the U.S., looking at the U.S. as a, as a model. That's why it's so critical that our engagement on the continent uh, be with, not strictly with the young people, but certainly with the young people, but um, most important for us to be engaged directly, uh, especially with the technology tools that we have at our, our disposal uh, today. Uh, so that uh, we can be a counterforce uh, to uh, U.S. soft power and how it tries to drain uh, the energy of uh, African youth and turn them towards, quote-unquote, U.S. democracy and U.S. capitalism and neoliberal policies. So uh, without a doubt, uh, there is... a uh, vibrant resistance uh, throughout the continent, and uh, the U.S. Uh, certainly has been implementing uh, policies, uh, especially under uh, President Obama, in order to to blunt uh, the uh, revolutionary verve of uh, of African youth. Now, now, when we um, and th and this and and I'm trying to, if you don't mind, I'm trying to flush out um, some understanding um, when we talk about um, resistance. Um, geopolitics uh, and on the continent and dealing with the um, resistance 
and then the military occupation, and then um, in a global context, they calling it, you know, Cold War because of Russia involvement and and China. And we've seen um, when with the Ukraine um, incident, and I'm I'm trying to get to um, the heads of states leadership and the splits mm. amongst them, um, because I think that that's important for us to understand that. There, there is no one side fit all in relationship to the heads of states at the, um, that UN, um, um, what's that vote in relationship to the support for the Ukraine? You've seen mm-hmm. the extension votes and you've seen those who were supportive of the U.S. Um, in relationship to supporting the Ukraine. What I'm trying to ask and to get your reflection on is how, um, how does that look? Is it just the state leaders against um, what they would call rebels uh, or young people who wish to really take control um, in this in this bigger game, or is it is it some state leaders say in the Congo and mm. other states that are not supportive of U.S. Um, foreign policy? or military occupation. And if there is other states that are not state leaders that are not supportive, um, is there, is the, you know, um, could you shed some light on who that might be? What, what countries may not be very supportive of us foreign policy? Yeah. Uh, That's a, that's an excellent um, question. And, I think what, if you look at the Biden administration strategy uh, document, if you read the strategy document uh, for Africa, Mm -hmm. uh, you see in there one of the four points was to engage African leaders in order (laughs) that they may support, uh, engage them diplomatically uh, so that they can weigh in on the U.S. side uh, when it comes to international questions, uh, like the one, like what we saw, we see, uh, in, in Ukraine. And, uh, I think there's some, if I'm not mistaken, 27 or so African countries that didn't vote, either abstained or didn't vote, uh, for, uh, the resolution that was put forth, uh, condemning Russia at the, at the United Nations. I think probably really good. Uh, lens to, to view this through. Uh, it was a speech uh, given by, uh, I believe, the South African Foreign Minister uh, Naladi Pandor, where yes. uh, she was with uh, Anthony Blinken. Was, uh, Anthony Blinken had recently gone to the continent following uh, a tour by Russian Foreign Minister uh, Sergei Lavrov. And she, uh, I think, captured the essence of what um, African leaders and African population feel, whether or not they express it uh, publicly, where she talked about how it is that the United States is not in a position to be a moralizer, to be a giver of lessons, uh, to serve as a moral authority, and she reminded the U.S. uh, and Anthony Blinken in particular that the U.S. has been 
playing a destructive role on the African continent, uh, not only by overthrowing democratic leaders, but also supporting authoritarian, what they call authoritarian leaders on the African continent, uh, and uh, fomenting conflict on the, on the African continent. And it, it was quite apt that this was coming, this critique was coming out of uh, South Africa. Because if you remember, you know, South Africa today is ruled by the African National Congress. If you remember, when we're talking about U.S. history, the African National Congress was on the U.S. terrorist list. As far as the United States government was concerned, Nelson Mandela was a terrorist. Yes. Even when he was president of South Africa. I think it was uh, an effort by the Congressional Black Caucus uh, for Nelson Mandela's 90th birthday to try to uh, mobilize votes in the U.S. Congress to get Mandela removed from the U.S. terrorist list. So uh, the U.S., uh, it's, I'll be hard-pressed. I, I, I don't know, maybe one of you, you two have heard or read somewhere where the U.S. was in support of any liberation movement on the African continent. No, I, no. I just, I, I cannot, no. I cannot pinpoint it. No. Right? Uh, where if we take Cuba, for example, that's on the, uh, uh, some say an embargo or really a blockade by the United States. Cuba was clear uh, about its uh, relationship to Africa and African liberation. Uh, one can make an argument that there, is no, there would be no end to apartheid if it wasn't for Cuba. And the battles that it waged with the Angolans that defeated the South African troops, especially at the famous battle of uh, Cueto Carnaval in, in, in Angola, where the, you, the South African troops were roundly uh, defeated by uh, Cubans. Many of the Cubans were Af- Afro-Cubans who went back in a very concrete show of solidarity and Pan-African solidarity fight with their brothers and sisters in Angola, which led to the ultimate uh, liberation of uh, today in Namibia and the end of uh, apartheid in, uh, in, in South Africa. Uh, so the, whether it's the, it's the elite and some of the compradors or the masses, they're, they're clear about U.S. foreign policy and U.S. Uh, history in, as it relates to uh, liberation movements, as it relates to, relates to freedom fighters, as it relates to uh, Africans trying to exercise sovereignty uh, over their land, where the U.S. has been on the wrong side of uh, history uh, throughout. Um, so we uh, see that uh, even though you have uh, countries like Kenya who wrote, uh, I believe one of their ministers uh, wrote uh, a scathing critique of, uh, of Russia, uh, I think you'd see that, uh, you know, there was a public uh, article published by Africa Confidential that basically surveyed African leaders, and many of them spoke of the condition of anonymity. They didn't want to uh, run afoul of the U.S., 
And they were complaining. They were like, the U.S. is not in a, in a position, really, to tell us uh, who to support or not to support or who uh, is uh, right or wrong. And they are like, the U.S. itself uh, invaded um, Iraq, you know, based on a, a bevy of lies uh, that uh, caused the deaths of uh, hundreds of thousands uh, of, uh, of Iraqis. So what you do find is that uh, African leaders, uh, at the uh, national leaders, political leaders, they're clear uh, for the most part. Uh, the big question is whether or not they're willing to, to speak publicly and, and uh, threaten their whatever tenuous relationship they, they may have with the United, uh, United States government. And Elliot, if I can, I, because uh, Brother Maurice raised uh, something that we always address, and I wanted to, you know, before, you know, I, I have many questions, and I do um, like to get, because in the circle I'm in, there, there's some confusion we have around Rwanda and, and, and the president mm. um, Kangami. But the, the, mm. the, the point that you raise is um, when it, um, it brings it home from the perspective of think globally, act locally, and that is our um, U.S. Um, black representatives in the Congress and Senate, who obviously um, gets a lot, and as we move into the midterm, get a lot of votes from black folks and mm-hmm. are also engaged in this foreign policy formation or at least support. Um, mm-hmm. Is there any um, congressional leaders that have that you've heard of and, and you're, you're in D.C. that is, has voiced um, any resistance to American foreign policy as it relates to that? <laughs> uh, Cynthia McKinney. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay. We have to go back. I mean, I hate to say it, but we have to go back to Cynthia McKinney. Mm. You know, in... in uh, in Washington, you know, Washington is a political town. It's a partisan town. So party politics prevail. Um, so I know we approached a number of members of Congress, and one of the, their primary concerns is uh, uh, at the time, uh, they didn't want to embarrass the black president, so they wouldn't, they wouldn't say anything that would be critical of U.S. foreign policy in general. And especially in Africa. And uh, even today, there's not a black president that, you know, most black, almost all the blacks uh, are Democrats. So there's a, uh, the president is Democrat, you're not going to get much dissent uh, from, uh, from the members of the Congressional Black Caucus. Um, you also raised a, a second question, which I, I'd like to take some time to, uh, to speak to, where you said there, in your circles or in the, in your circles, there's confusion around Paul Kagame, uh, president of Rwanda. I, I really, uh, and I think probably I would venture to say the confusion is a result of the massive, massive propaganda uh, campaign uh, around Paul Kagame and how he's um, presented to us and to the world, us black folks and to the world. I think if you 
cut through the propaganda, right? Mm. And you look at the facts and the evidence, there ought to be no confusion. Uh, if you call yourself a Pan-Africanist, I think even folks who call themselves Pan-Africanists say, well, Kagame is a Pan-Africanist. I was like, really? <laughs> really? I said, okay. Uh, so I, I look in the tradition of Pan-Africanism, right? And I'll be hard-pressed to find one Pan-Africanist, one Pan-Africanist of note, right, that sought to ensconce themselves in colonial institutions. As far as I know, Pan-Africanists has resisted colonialism, resisted colonial institutions, tried to dismantle colonial institutions. However, you have the president of Rwanda, who intentionally, primarily a French-speaking country, intentionally changed the language to English, and intentionally sought membership in the British Commonwealth, mm. right? And was successful at doing that, in fact, the Commonwealth meeting for 2022 was held in Rwanda. Uh, the queen just died, and she's uh, emblematic of that Commonwealth institution. And if you look across, uh, you just do a cursory look on the African social media, you see that they're taking, them, taking the queen to, to task for its role mm-hmm. in colonialism and theft. But yet, someone that's held up as a Pan-Africanist has sought and successfully obtained membership in the Commonwealth. But he didn't stop there. Uh, He and uh, Macron uh, had a rapprochement, and uh, he also sought membership in the Francophonie, which is the colonial relic of the French (laughs) that uh, dominated Africans and uh, on the continent and throughout the Caribbean and, and elsewhere. So uh, if your standard for Pan-Africanism is inclusion in the Francophonie, inclusion in the British Commonwealth, then Kagame is your man, he's your Pan-Africanist. If your standard for Pan-Africanism is cavorting with some of the most dastardly characters, Western characters, uh, war criminals, some would say, then Kagame is your guy because he counts Tony Blair as a chief advisor. A war criminal invaded Iraq with Bush. Uh, one of his, uh, Kagame's generals got caught up in, uh, in Britain because of... Uh, a similar law coming out of the Spanish court under the principle of universal jurisdiction that has international arrest warrants out for some 40 top officials uh, from Rwanda for crimes against humanity, war crimes. The same courts that uh, ensnared uh, Pinochet, uh, they, in, one of his officials was in Britain and was uh, arrested. And none other than the wife of Tony Blair came to his rescue. Uh, he shares a stage with people like uh, Sheldon Adelson, a rich billionaire out of uh, Nevada, who is uh, known for being one of the major supporters of Newt Gingrich presidential campaign and is certainly a supporter of many of the right-wing <laughs> uh, uh, causes in the United States. 
had close ties with uh, that minister out of California, Rick Warren. Mm. Uh, he uh, cavorted with Benjamin Netanyahu. We talk about how Netanyahu can send African immigrants back to Rwanda in a, in a, with a racist policy. He did the same for with Boris Johnson out of uh, out of the UK when he was uh, he was prime minister. Uh, you'll find him uh, at the side of uh, the captains of industry, capitalist uh, uh, captains of industry at the World Economic Forum at Davos every year. Uh, he is uh, close. Uh, Ties with uh, Schultz of Starbucks or Howard Buffett, uh, one of Warren Buffett's uh, sons, who invested some hundred and forty million dollars in Rwanda and the uh, and the region. Uh, so, and if something needs to be done militarily on the African continent, he can be counted on by France and by the United States to do it. Uh, where we see in Mozambique, where Rwanda sent his troops to address so-called terrorists in Mozambique, which was a uh, cover for protecting uh, oil concessions for French uh, oil companies. And uh, when we talk about the, the Congo and uh, estimated 6 million Congolese that have perished from 1996 to the present, that's a result of uh, two invasions by Rwanda and Uganda, Paul Kagame and Yeru Museveni. And in those invasions, uh, they're backed by the United States. The uh, United States provide them with military equipment, intelligence, training, financing. Almost half of the Rwandan budget is, uh, comes out of the largesse of the United Kingdom and the United States. Uh, so just compare Paul Kagame, for example, to Thomas Sankara. Mm. <laughs> You see the exact opposite. Thomas Sankara was standing side by side with the uh, French president and Jean, you know, uh, Mitterrand and telling him that his policy in South Africa was criminal. And uh, that's when, you know, that's one of the factors that Mitterrand said, this guy's got to go. So Pan-Africanists who are revolutionary and believe in a self-determined, self-sufficient, uh, African continents are not fed by the West. They're not invited to Davos. They're not a part of the Francophonie. They're not a part of the British Commonwealth. They are not put a stamp upon by the likes of Madeleine Albright, Bill Clinton, who's a close friend of Kagame, and Susan Rice. <laughs> who all said that these figures, that the Kagamis represented a new breed of leadership, the new Pan-African leaders. So for those of you who believe that Kagame is a new Pan-African leader, it just means that you've swallowed line, hook, and sinker what Madeleine Albright, Bill Clinton, and Susan Rice put out uh, in 1998 in the Entebbe conference that they had in Entebbe, Uganda where they identified certain African leaders as a new breed of African leaders. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, those of us who do not know, uh, have embraced them. And when, in fact, uh, they're, especially Kagame, some of the staunchest uh, enemies of Africa, 
and has uh, the blood of millions of Africans on his hands. And the Congo is prima facie evidence uh, for that. So, uh, and there should be, should be no lack of clarity about what Kagame is. Uh, you can decide whether you know, he's your guy uh, or not, but he's not, he does not come in the tradition of Sankara, Nkrumah, Lumumba, Toure, none of them, Samoa Michel, none of them. That's not, that's not, that's not Kagame's tradition. This graduate of, uh, not a graduate, but attendee of Fort Leavenworth Military School in the United States is not in that mold. His nation doesn't represent a model for the African continent as a whole. In fact, he plays into the most racist tropes that the West puts out, where they say in order for you to control Africans, for Africans to be decent, for them to be clean, you have to crack heads, right? You have to suppress them. You have to whoop them. And that's what he does in Rwanda, in a totalitarian state. Uh, that's why he's so vetted uh, and celebrated. That's part of the reason why he's so vetted and celebrated by the West, because they're like, you know, oh, man, that's a Gami guy. He keeps the street, street clean in Rwanda. He's cracking heads. <laughs> and that's how, that's the only way that Africans are going to keep, keep their land clean, if they have somebody over them that's cracking heads and cracking whip. So uh, he embraces the, the most degrading tropes of white supremacy that uh, we see, uh, in spite of his rhetoric where he talks about, you know, we should do this as Africans and I don't like them talking to us like this. And people, uh, unfortunately, fall for that uh, because that is grounded in uh, the decades of propaganda that the United States and its media outlets have perpetuated uh, to confuse Africans, both at home and abroad, about what uh, Kagame uh, and his government uh, represents. Uh, just then, just one last example. This in the last, they, they even say he's a Democrat. <laughs> they even classify uh, Rwanda as a Democrat, a Democratic state. The last election, he won with 99% of the vote. And that wasn't even sufficient. One young lady who decided to challenge him, her name is Dion Regara. He put her in jail for daring to challenge him. Meanwhile, he purports to be a, a nation that's got, I don't know how many members of parliament that are women, but the two women who have challenged him over the last two elections, uh, Victor Ingabire in 2010, and uh, most recently uh, Dion Regara, he put him in jail. Even as he won, he wins the elections with, quote-unquote, wins the elections with 99, 95, 99% uh, respectively from 2010 and, and most recently. So, no, I, I, he, if you look at the evidence and the facts, uh, you'd have a hard time either making an argument for Kagame as a Pan-Africanist, uh, a visionary leader, or a model for the African continent. Richard, I think he uh, he answered that question, Richard. Hey, hey, Brother Maurice, I am so pleased that um, you um, 
have done the work to, you know, so as you say, the propaganda machine in relationship to um, propping up Mogami's um, image is so pronounced. And, and, and we get very little information as it relates to unless you're really engaged in it. So I really am um, pleased in, 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 both, in both looking at the congressional of, officers because that gets into us um, mm. and how we vote and who we put in these positions and the mindset and the positions that they take that is against at least those, and I like the way you characterize it and talking about Kangami, those who see themselves as pan-Africanists or those who see themselves as um, black nationalists or those who see themselves on the right side of history as it relates to African people cannot be putting in office people who will intentionally support by corporate or political power people who is against African people. It just, you know, I mean, that's something that we have to wrestle with here. Um, and we're, and we're oh, doing- without, without, without a doubt, and I might add, that's where it's incumbent upon us to do the heavy lifting yes. of political education. Yes. Uh, being in the faith institutions, being in the schools, being in the community and educating our people so that they can be empowered to challenge those uh, political leaders that come to them uh, with uh, policies that we know are anti-African. So we have to arm them with the information, to arm them with the political education uh, so that they can uh, use that in order to uh, hold these political leaders uh, accountable, whether they're in the Congressional Black Caucus or any other uh, entity. You know, we, we're going to take a brief break. And when we come back, uh, you can call in if you've got a question or comment for our guest, Brother Maurice Carney, activist, organizer, and co-founder and executive director of the Friends of the Congo. Um, before we go, you know, Brother Maurice and Richard, uh, you asked about the leader of Uganda, and Brother Maurice talked about how the, the U.S. Uh, lords him as being a example of African leadership. Let me read this because, you know, I, I think it's important that all of our people know the proper information about people that, especially people that look like us, that's doing things to build uh, American imperialism instead of African mm-hmm. sovereignty. And mm-hmm. you you touched on this, uh, Brother Maurice, but let me let me read this because it comes right from the USA Aid website, and you can see it on. USA.gov and other sites. And this was an organization that Obama started when he was president. Uh, Young African Leaders Initiative is a long-term effort to invest in the next generation of African leaders. It was started by President, then President Obama during his administration. Uh, It's in it, it it's to invest in the next generation of African leaders and strengthen partnerships between the United States and Africa. This wide ranging effort has been led by the white house and the U S department of state in partnership with the U S agency for international development, USAID and the peace corps. 
The next phase will develop a prestigious network of leaders across critical sectors of the continent, cement stronger ties to the United States, and offer follow-on leadership opportunities in Africa with the goal of strengthening democratic institutions and spurring economic growth. The Department of State has supported the initiative through a series of high-profile forums with youth leaders, including the uh, former president's young leadership forum and the former first lady, Michelle Obama's young African women leaders forum. The Young African Leaders Initiative has developed a variety of approaches and programs have been tried and tested in Washington at U.S. embassies abroad. And they got three points here. Buy-in from the highest levels of the U.S. government. Supporting policy frameworks, the U.S. strategy towards sub-Saharan Africa. And the last one here is, uh, it says, top-down meets grassroots approach. Now, I have no clue what that is. Brother Maurice, you might be able to explain that a little bit better. But we see here, and that's just, and I'm not even talking about the Peace Corps or the National Endowment for Democracy. Those are other things that we might talk about after this break. But this Young African Leadership Initiative that that, that was started during Obama administration is detrimental to any freedom struggles on the continent. It's Mm -hmm. clear. It's clear. If anybody's foggy with it, then do the research. Listen, you can love Obama. You can love Michelle. Oh, they got a great family. And uh, those things are nice. But when it comes to any freedom and sovereignty for black people, these people are on the other side of the chessboard. And their Mm -hmm. actions show it. Let's take a brief break. And when we come back, you can get involved with a question or comment. And you can do that by dialing 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. Brother Maurice, can you stay with us a little bit longer? Yes. Good. We'll be right back. For an awakening, time for an awakening with host Brother Elliot and Brother Richard on Time for an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit them up at time for an awakening at gmail.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American owned and operated insurance agency and business for over 20 years. Located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowners insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services. Representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies. Offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 21. 
215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. Your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. Dooley Brothers, specializing in shingle, rubber roofs, gutters, downspouts, and vinyl sidings. Call for your free estimate today, 215-224-3882. That's 215-224-3882. Dooley Brothers Roofing, the roofing experts you can trust. That number again, 215-224-3882. 215-224-3882. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. RG Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter, serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today, 484-268-9837. Escape the digital plantation. Abibitumi.com, Abibitumi.tv, Abibitumi.tv.com, Abibitumi.store are here for you. You are ready to be free of non-African social media. Don't run from danger. Run to safety. Abibitumi.com is here for you. You are ready to be free of digital plantations to control your own products. Abibitumi.store is here for you. A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I. Black Power. A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I. The only word you need to know to join your global Kometsu black family, to join your interconnected Kometsu black communities, escape the digital plantation now, abibitumi.com, abibitumi.tv, abibitumitv.com, abibitumi.store. We are here for you. Escape the digital plantation. I am an African. The death of my brother is also my death. Let me put this question to you again, because many foolish black middle classes and many foolish people who are eating well think that they can sit in America and watch this country destroy the African continents and watch this country destroy African Caribbeans and watch this country destroy Africans in Central and South America and think that these same people who destroy Africans abroad will not be the same people who will destroy them in America. There are fools in this this country who try to claim that they are not Africans, who claim that they do not see color, as if they're not seeing color makes any difference in the world. Simply because you don't see color doesn't mean somebody does not see you as color. And that's the issue. And you think then that you can sit in this country while this same nation and these same people that you sleep with and marry and love and so forth can go out and destroy African people and not think those people do not see you as African. Even though you choose not to see yourself as African, you better think again. You're out of your minds and you're headed for death. You must understand that. Hide behind it. I am an American. Ladies and gentlemen, the death and destruction of black people will follow those kind of abstractions.
probably the next five or ten years will indicate whether or not the black man can survive. Our struggle for survival is a very real struggle. And the white man has prepared genocide for black people. Unemployment, the black man is no longer necessary. Unemployment is going to be a way of life for black people. We are going to face increasing dangers and problems as the days pass. And we're totally unequipped as black people to deal with them. We're a part of a slave culture. We have no preparation. We have no black institutions capable of dealing with white racist institutions designed to serve only white people. We must deal with the problem that confronts black people by building black institutions, by understanding that only a separatist position is a viable position for black people. Any organization or any leader in America who today advocates integration is a foe and an enemy of black people and their survival in the coming years. In this crooked game of power politics here in America, the Negro, namely the race problem, integration, civil rights issue, are all nothing but tools used by the whites who call themselves liberals against another group of whites who call themselves conservatives, either to get into power or to retain power. Among whites here in America, the political teams are no longer divided into Democrats and Republicans. The whites who are now struggling for control of the American political throne are divided into liberal and conservative camps. The white liberals from both parties cross party lines to work together toward the same goal. And white conservatives from both parties do likewise. The white liberal differs from the white conservative only in one way. The liberal is more deceitful, more hypocritical than the conservative. Both want power, but the white liberal is the one who has perfected the art of posing as the Negro's friend and benefactor. And by winning the friendship and support of the Negro, the white liberal is able to use the Negro as a pawn or a weapon in this political football game that is constantly raging between the white liberals and the white conservatives. The American Negro is nothing but a political football. You are listening to Time for an Awakening. Time for an Awakening. With host Brother Elliot and Brother Richard on Time for an Awakening Media. Part of the Black Talk Radio Network for podcasting or live program scheduling, hit them up at timeforanawakening at gmail.com. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening. It's 847 here on the Sunday edition of Time for an Awakening. Our guest this evening in conversation, activist, organizer, co-founder, and executive director of the Friends of the Congo, Brother Maurice Carney is with us this evening. We're talking about the U.S. policy towards sub-Saharan Africa and related issues that directly affect brothers and sisters on the continent or people or brothers and sisters in the diaspora. Again, you can get involved with a question or comment for our guests by dialing 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. Let's go to Toronto. They've been waiting 647. Toronto. Uh, can you hear me, sir? Yes, sir. 
Uh, yeah, I wanted to make a, uh, a comment then. I wanted to ask a question. When I was uh, the first week in high school, I went to school in Los Angeles, California, and there was a gentleman there. I won't name his name, but uh, he was one of the best dressed guys in, 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 in the school, maybe Los Angeles. He had his own tar. He had women galore. And he was a member of Al Prentice Bunchy Carter's set of Slawsons. He was a renegade Slawson. And everybody looked up to him. I mean, really looked up to him. And I think it was, uh, I forgot what the, uh, the moment those guys were killed on, uh, I think it was January 17th, uh, 66 or 61 and, or 61. And this guy was making fun of, 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 of the name boo. And he was, just, uh, doing some real Negro type stuff. And there was a brother from the nation of Islam was looking at him and he pointed at me and, and told me to, because I was really upset. I couldn't figure out why would this black man be talking about another black man, uh, the way he was talking about him. So the brother asked me, would I like to go to the temple, which Los Angeles, uh, the, the, was before they called it mosque, it was, it was Temple 27, 5606 uh, Broadway. And I went to the nation, I went to the mosque, and I heard uh, Allah Akbar Muhammad, who at that time was John Shabazz. And uh, that really basically turned my life around, you know, at the, at the age of 14. But the question that I have is, could the, could the brother answer the question as to what happened to uh, the children of Patrice Lumumba and the children of Maurice Impolo and... Joseph Okito. Uh, no, I, I know uh, Lumumba had a daughter. I saw her one time. Uh, I saw I saw her one time. I think she's come come to uh, come to United States and Canada. But I saw her in in, in Uganda one time. So that's that's basically what I have to ask the brother, brother Maurice. Yes. Uh, yes. Thank. Thank you, brother. Thank you for the for the question, and uh, a double thank you for mentioning uh, Maurice Empolo and Joseph Okito, uh, two of Lumumba's comrades who were assassinated with him on January 17, uh, 1961. Uh, we had. Uh, family member, we've been in communication with a family member of Joseph Okito, and we're in constant communication with uh, the family members of, uh, or the children of Patrice Lumumba. Uh, A few years ago, we invited one of Lumumba's children, Guy Patrice Lumumba, to the United States. We did a tour with him to uh, introduce him to the U.S. US um, population, the black community in the United States, Africans in the U.S. Uh, just uh, last 
year, in 2021, uh, we have what we call Congo Week, the week of activities, uh, the third week of each October uh, that uh, unfolds throughout, uh, throughout the globe where people raise consciousness about what's unfolding in the Congo. And as a part of Congo Week, uh, we have a Patrice Lumumba Prize and or Patrice Lumumba Humanitarian Award. And we gave that award to Juliana Lumumba, uh, the only uh, daughter of, uh, of Patrice Lumumba. And uh, she had a inspiring message uh, for for young um, Africans and to to reassure them that uh, the struggle uh, her father's struggle uh, continues to this uh, very uh, to this very day and so uh, Juliana uh, Guy Patrice uh, uh, Roland uh, Lumumba and uh, they uh, uh all um, uh, we're in communication with them, and they're all either living. I know Guy Patrice is in Europe, and I think the others uh, uh, definitely Juliana lives uh, in in uh, in Congo. Could I ask you another question? Is that possible, uh, Elliot? Yes. Uh, you know, it, it, I don't want to get uh, mystical or anything, but you know, Al Prentice, Bunchy Carter, and John Huggins were assassinated eight years later. Bunchy and John lost their lives at UCLA on January 17th, 1969. Did we lose him? No. Are you still there? I'm still, I'm still here, but I was, I was just, I, I was just making the comment that Bunchy Carter and John Huggins, members of the black Panther party were assassinated Eight years later, I guess on uh, January seventeenth, nineteen sixty-nine, at UCLA, in, at uh, in front of Campbell Hall, or in Campbell Hall. I'm sorry. Okay. I'm still here, but uh, I would just, I would just, 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 just throw, throwing that out there. That's all. Okay. Listen, uh, thank you for your contribution, brother. Any questions? All hey, right, Richard. thank you. Yo, wait a minute. Bridget? Oh, no, no, I wanted to ask Brother Maurice because you mentioned okay. you have a Patrice Lumumba Day. Is that, you said, in October? Well, it's Congo week. We do have a Patrice Lumumba Day, which is January 17th of each year. Mm-hmm. And, in fact, if people want to get information about it and be a part of it, they can go to uh, Lumumba Day. Uh, dot org, and they uh, uh, they will get information about uh, about uh, how they can be a part of Lumumba Day. It's, it's and the reason why we chose that, although Lumumba was born on July second, nineteen twenty five, uh, which uh, the, the brother John who just called in and said he didn't want to get too mystical. <laughs> Uh, and he was, throwing, he was presenting some dates uh, with uh, Bunchy and John Huggins. Uh, uh, Bunchy John Huggins. He's uh, July 2nd, 1925. is a birthday 
of Patrice Lumumba. And it's also the birthday of uh, Medgar Evers. Mm. And they both share the same day and, uh, and year. Uh, and both of them were, for all intents and purposes, brought down by the empire and, and white supremacy. Yes. And on July 2nd, uh, we often uh, commemorate the two of them together and connecting uh, Mississippi with the Congo, uh, much in the same way that uh, Malcolm connected Mississippi with the Congo. He probably made the most, uh, one of the most um, salient points about why we must hear about the Congo again. One of his early meetings of the Organization of uh, Afro-American Unity, he was supposed to show a film on the Congo, and uh, somehow the film wasn't working, and people were getting restless in the audience, and you know, and some of the audience members were like, you know, why do we have to be focused on the Congo anyway? We're catching hell right here in the United States. And Malcolm retorted that uh, as long as you believe, as long as you think, you have to get Mississippi straight uh, before you get the Congo straight, you'll never get Mississippi straight. So you know, laying out the connection that we have the same oppressors. Uh, same system that keeps people down in Mississippi, that keeps people down in, in the Congo. And for Lumumba Day, found at LumumbaDay.org, uh, we commemorate uh, uh, Patrice Lumumba on that day. And uh, part of the reason uh, being that what uh, the questioner raised, that that enables us to, to lift up not only Lumumba, by his comrades, uh, Maurice and Polo and Joseph Okito, who were also assassinated with, right beside Lumumba at gunpoint in the firing squad. So LumumbaDay.org is where people can go to sign up to uh, do something on that day to commemorate uh, Patrice Lumumba and, and uphold uh, his struggle. And just the very mentioning the utterance of his name is really a form of resistance because the colonialists, the imperialists, uh, wanted us to, to forget about Lumumba just by the way they, they killed him, the way they chopped up his body into small pieces and dumped it in a barrel of acid to disintegrate it. They wanted to erase him uh, in, its enti- in its entirety from the planet, any thinking about him, any thought of Lumumba. So we think about Lumumba, we hold up Lumumba's name, we utter his name, just the very act of doing that is a form of resistance and a striking, striking of a blow against colonialism and imperialism. Wow. Let's go to 914. 914. Let's put them back on hold. Let's go to 404. 404. Hey, hey, Yehudu, my brothers. Yes, sir. Hey, before I want to talk about, I want to talk about South Africa. But before I get to South Africa, uh, hey, my man, do you know a good news channel? I guess from the Congo or uh, any country in Africa, where I can look at uh, 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 news from the uh, FK belong and our own news. You know, a good channel I can go to. Yeah, there are there there are a number of uh, channels. Are you talking about just? Uh, 
media, yeah, for, uh, electronic yeah, news yeah. or newspaper. You know, yeah, what I found, what I, 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 you have um, allafrica.com, uh, there's pambazooka.com. Uh, yeah, com. But you, but you know, the really interestingly enough, uh, uh, what I've found where a lot of Africans are uh, on, and I know there's some uh, independent um, African social media as well. Uh, that that's, uh, I think brother, uh, brothers, you've announced them on this uh, on this show already. Uh, but uh, I've found that, uh, even though I hate to say it, uh, Twitter. A lot of uh, Africans are on Twitter and sharing information about what's unfolding in their respective countries, uh, whether they're in Kenya or in South Africa um, or what have you. And each each country um, has its own uh, media outlet uh, on the continent. There's, uh, irrespective of the country that you go to, you can find, uh, uh, you know, you just go online and search uh, for local media, uh, and I would recommend okay. that uh, local media in each country, and you'll get right. access to the local local media there. You know. Okay. Because ho- hopefully, uh, man, we're trying to come together, man. All these different tribes and stuff over there, man. Because see, that South Africa, you familiar with uh, a dude? Uh, I mean, I think named Peter Malinko. You familiar with him in South Africa? Malinko. I, I didn't catch. I, I, I didn't catch your name. Uh, I think his last name Malenko. You talking about Malenko? South Africa. Oh, you yeah. must be talking oh, yeah. about Julius uh, Malema. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he yeah, the man. He, 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 economic freedom fighters. Yeah, because what he said was, see, what, Af- what South Africa messed up, they tried to do like us with that one man, one vote, and that's all they got. But the damn devil still got the damn uh, the mines and the gold mines and all the big businesses. So what my man said, he said he tired of his people starving because all they got is vote. So he said the time is ticking now because the people going to get tired and they going to kill all the, uh, the oppressors over there and the satellite, uh, I don't say Negroes, but the satellite compartments that's stopping the regular people from eating. So uh, pretty soon it's about to blow up over there in South Africa, man. So the people tired, man. So that's what that's what Malumbo said, man. And he's a freedom fighter, man. So I love that brother right there, man. So I'm gonna quote him again. He said the people tired of starving over there with these satellite uh puppets and the white oppressors. So he he just like us, say it's time to kill them all. Kill them the oppressors and they sell out who with them, man. So that's in South Africa. That's beautiful right there. So that's that's it, man. We got it's time to take our stuff back, man, because they gotta give it up. The London bridges done fail, man. London falling, all that shit falling. The Vatican next, man, and America next. So all that depending on these damn oppressors, it's time they're going to give, it back, give us our stuff, man. That's the point I'm making. It's time for them to give up our stuff because I'm just like my man Bubba on Sanford, son. I want all my daddy records, gold, diamonds, land they stole. It's coming, man. So uh, y'all get ready, y'all. So uh, I, hey, ain't gonna be, the sellout's going to be killed, too, with the devils, man. That's what's going to happen, man. Over here, too, probably. But definitely over there, man. So I don't want to make no speech or nothing. But I, that's what I see, man. People tired of this crap, man. London Bridge is through, man. All right? Okay. Yeah, so they too, man. People tired of their ass, man. They're going to give up all our shit they stole, man. We getting it. 
All right, I'm going to leave it like that, man. That's something to chew on, y'all. <laughs> Thank you for your contribution, brother. All right. Yes, sir. Let's go to 602. 602? Uh, yes, brother, and brother Richard. Good evening, uh, and good evening to your guests, uh, brother Marcos here. How are you, sir? I'm all right, good brother. I want to ask your guest um, a question. Now, the present president and prime minister of the Congo, um, could he give us some um, dear relationship to the past regime? Because I'm getting to understand that uh, either the president or the, the prime minister is like a grandson or a, or a son of one of those reactionaries that helped to kill Lumumba. Could he shed a little more light on that if he knows and, and I'll move my forward and listen? Yeah, uh, the the president of the, the Congo, his name is um, Felix, Felix uh, Chesikedi. And uh, his father was Etienne, Etienne Chesikedi, who was a major opposition figure to the Mobutu regime uh, from the early 1980s. Uh, however, before that, he had worked with, uh, with Mobutu and was part of the Mobutu regime and uh, been implicated in the... Uh, assassin capture and assassination of uh, of Patrice Lumumba. Um, so your the accounts that have been shared with you around that uh, is uh, is is correct. Oh, uh, let me see, uh, Brother Marcus. Any other question, or, or did you want to throw in? No, no, no. That's it. That's it. That's why I need that clarification. Thank you for yeah. you. Thank you for your contribution, sir. No problem. Uh, Brother Maurice, you know, I, I'm because I want you to throw your insight on a few of these things. I, I'm, I'd uh, me and Richard talked about this uh, this uh, U.S. policy towards Sub-Saharan Africa, and we keyed in on some mm-hmm. of the the so-called points. Well, the, I guess points, not so-called the points that's in this document. I just want to read a couple paragraphs to you of some of the ones that really stood out to me uh, under the strategic objectives of the U.S. towards the continent. Um, And I'll just read a little brief paragraphs, snippets of each one. Uh, The first one is that the United States will pursue four objectives in sub-Saharan South Africa each in coordination with our allies and partners in the regions around the world, as well as with regional and global institutions. Now, they're talking about other European countries. I guess it's all in the language when you're dealing with uh, yeah. with, with Europeans. Uh, let me, and I'm going to continue on. At the same time, we acknowledge that Africa's potential will continue to be challenged as long as deadly conflicts divide its societies, corruption impedes economic progress, mismanagement mismanagement squanders natural resources, 
Food insecurity heightens the risk of famine and malnutrition for the most vulnerable vulnerable populations, and repression stifles human rights and democratic expressions. Now, the United States has been guilty of all of those things on the continent. (laughs) But they're saying that they're there to stop it. Now, let, let me go to a couple more of these, and then I'll get you to just throw your insight on some of these. Uh, under foster openness and open societies. It says the United States will work with African governments, civil societies, public to increase transparency and accountability, including by supporting investigative journalism, combating digital authoritarianism, and uh, reform practices that promote shared democratic norms. The United States will increase its focus on the rule of law, justice, and dignity uh, to deepen resilience and undercut negative influences. (laughs) The United States will assist African countries to be more transparent, leverage their natural uh, resources, including energy resources and critical materials. Uh, Wow. The United States will support African democracies by backing civil societies, including activists and workers who reform with reform-minded leaders, empowering marginalized groups such as LGBTQI individuals. And the last one I want to read, and then I'm going to throw it to you, Brother Maurice is this one here because it's it's really strange because the the western government here has always built a mentality among Africans in the diaspora particularly in the United States to distance themselves from Africans on the continent to the point now where some of our people think that we're two separate people right but look at what this policy states and the wording. R- Richard, I want you to chime in on this. It says, uh, this is under their initiatives. It says, engage Africa's African diaspora. Our African diaspora is a source of strength. It includes African Americans, descendants of former enslaved Africans, and nearly 2 million African immigrants who maintain close, familiar, social, and economic connections to the continent. Now, that's one of the so-called objectives here. I'm scratching my head. What are you talking about? Let me read it again, Richard, before Brother Maurice comments on it. I want you to say something on this. Under their objectives, it says, engage America's African diaspora. Our African diaspora is a source of strength. It includes African Americans, descendants of former enslaved Africans, and nearly 2 million African immigrants who maintain close family, social, and economic connections with the continent. So these Europeans here look at you like you're one people, according to this. Mm. But they've Mm. always drilled in black people's minds the propaganda that you're somewhere somehow different 
you're an American and they're African. And some of our people buy into that. Give, give me your feelings on that, uh, Brother Maurice and Richard. You know, I, I'm, I'm taking a position, and Brother Maurice, you, you touched on it. You, you continuously touched on it, um, especially when you made reference to the age, the demographics on the continent, um, the average demographics. Right now, I, I'm taking a position that um, young Africans on the continent um, here in North America, and, and I'm saying Africans, the, those who have an African consciousness. Now, they may not have a pull here. The political um, um, perspective may not be as focused as prior generations, but it's clear there's a clear understanding that the state is not working and does not work and the history that they have got when you mentioned about the study groups um, that the state is not going to work for um, African people. And they're, they're moving in that direction, not like um, those again in the past. And that is a threat to West, to the West plant strategic plan, grand strategy, because you can't have all these young people on the continent those those are here who are skilled, who have a framework, and those who are in these neighborhoods saying they're anti-Western or America is not working for them. The ones that's coming out of prison, the ones that was a part of this, um, that recognize police brutality and see, and not not really see them as a threat to whatever outcomes they're trying to deal with and do not wish a linkage between those young Africans on the continent, which with social media and, and other means can be able to more easily connect with each other in this generation than they have been able to do in prior. I mean, in more numbers. I think that that's why they're lumping together and that's why it's a part of their strategic plan. And that's why even certain language we when they hear would we'll say, what is that thing they call us? Uh, um, black identity extremists. <laughs> right? That means that you identify as your core value that you're African, even if you don't call yourself that, but that and mm. that you're anti-racist or anti-Western, or anti-this system as it operates. That's the way I interpret it. Yeah, I, I concur with uh, Richard and what, uh, even with something Brother Richard said earlier when we talked about war strategy, you know, the U.S. Uh, in its quest for full-spectrum domination on the planet, I that built uh, on really two major blocks that uh, were outlined by this uh, U.S. Uh, intellectual, his name is Joseph Nye, where he talks about U.S. hard power and U.S. soft power. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about U.S. soft power and the engagement between Africans, uh, communications and bringing folks uh, closer together is, is inevitable. So, uh, Brother Richard is right in terms of the 
uh, gravitational pull or the inertia that's pulling folks together on both sides of the Atlantic. And what the United States want to make sure that they do is control that engagement. Yes. Uh, so uh, I see that as a part of the effort to control the engagement. You talked about the Young African Leadership Initiative, or what they now call the Mandela Fellows. I see that as part of the, that uh, effort. Uh, uh, the, to the, the culture, uh, hip-hop artists and hip-hop, where the U.S. State Department engage, State Department engages, utilize hip-hop as a means of engaging young Africans on this side and on, on the continent as another uh, means of trying to, to control uh, the, the interaction. So I, I see it all as a, I mean, it's a longstanding effort on part of the, of the U.S. to leverage uh, its soft power in order to uh, meet its, uh, its strategic uh, aim. Uh, so uh, I'm not surprised uh, of the language and, and it's updated even calling uh, uh, enslaved Africans and sort of as a, using a you know, contemporary vernacular um, to appeal to uh, Africans uh, abroad or here in the, in the United States. Uh, so I, I do um, take uh, your, your note, brother, in that at the very least, if the U.S. sees us as one unit, you know, uh, we, why don't we, or shouldn't we, you know, and, and I'm reminded, uh, I think it, the program starts with, uh, John, the program starts with John Henry Clark. Yes. Uh, talking about the, the clock of history, you know, uh, he, he said something that, that has stuck with me to this day. He said that, well, he said, we may not know that we're Africans, but the enemy knows that we're Africans. <laughs> and, uh, the enemy has always been clear that we're Africans, whether we're at home uh, or uh, abroad. They've never been really confused of that. I know it. Uh, and they, they spent decades trying to keep us separate. And when it, you know, because of the environment that we're in now, the technology tools at our disposal, where that strategy is no longer viable, now they try to control the interaction. Uh, try to regulate uh, the interaction. And that's what we have to uh, point out, you know, coming out of the strategy document, and you lifted those, uh, those quotes uh, to, as a way to educate our people that uh, they are trying to control the way we interact. That's why I say we have to interact independently, you know, through we can directly engage with our brothers and sisters on the, on the African continent. They're, they're, the technology um, facilitates that. that. There's this group out of Philadelphia at one point, and I cannot recall their name now, but on Sundays, they used to organize uh, forums or Zoom exchanges with different progressive forces on the African continent. I don't know if they still do that. Uh, I just don't recall their name now, um, but they used to do that on a regular basis, and I and I thought that was such a uh, fantastic idea, and something that ought to be uh, not only uh, not only continued, but but needs to be expanded. 
where different communities, African communities here, engage with communities on the continent unfiltered uh, in a way uh, that we can uh, ground with each other and build ties uh, uh, for really the, our ultimate uh, uh, sovereignty, uh, liberation and sovereignty. Richard, are you aware of uh, what Brother Bruce when he mentioned, it, I was like, oh, I wish I was aware. Of it. I haven't heard. I have to. I yeah, have I'll, I'll 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 pull the name up of the organization, and you know they're based there in, in Philadelphia, and they used to. I don't know if they still do it, but I used to get their notices of their organizing uh, forums uh, every Sunday. Like, it'd be like Africa Sunday, where they would engage with uh, an exchange with different uh, African leaders from mm. the grassroots on the continent. And leaders here in the in the U.S. Especially something that need to happen continues to happen, right? Brother Maurice, the the conference that you spoke at earlier in August, uh, yeah, I think you did it by Zoom uh, with some African leaders. Yes. I think it was thirteen of them that represent the Horn of Africa, and they yes. were and they were talking about. No, I guess some maybe some similar subjects that we're talking about this evening. Absolutely, and, absolutely. And one of the Brothers was a uh, representative or an ambassador. Then the, the country escapes me. Said that he had reached out yeah. to uh, Gregory Meeks and Karen Bass and maybe a few other officials here in the United States in reference to their concerns and wanted some dialogue, and they didn't get a response from any of them. Mm. Uh, did, you, did, you, uh, did you recall that? Um, yes, uh, I recall ahead. that. I, I think the brother uh, was uh, he's from Ethiopia. Okay. The professor. He was a professor from Ethiopia. Okay. Uh, and they mentioned that. Uh, even though I didn't, I, I was I didn't get a chance to to fully engage because I was on and then I was on the move. So uh, I think he had, he had proposed some strategies that I, I felt like the immigrant community ought to tread lightly on, you know, because I think he said that the Ethiopian community had organized in Virginia to uh, help elect a Republican governor of Virginia. Mm-hmm. And he was intimating that the Republican governor uh, was more inclined to give them a hearing about uh, what's unfolding in uh, Ethiopia. So I just wanted to, uh, I didn't get a chance to at the time uh, to tell him to, to tread lightly and really uh, maybe temper his faith, you know, uh, in what the Republican governor can provide for, for Ethiopia. And, uh, you know, also take into consideration what whether Republican or Democratic governor is providing for Africans in Virginia, right? Uh, so, uh, one of the in, in, and that was one of the recommendations, the suggestions I made to to the brothers and sisters who are primarily from Uganda, that they they first and foremost should be building, grounding with Africans in the United States. Uh, that should be, be their first go to. Uh, to be to engage uh, in uh, organizing and building 
for the African community uh, here in the United States. Even when this came to a fore for us around the Congo up in Michigan when uh, Patrick Loyola was uh, gunned down by police. Uh, he was from the Congo. And I don't know if you all recall, this was back uh, a number of months ago. Yes. And the Congolese community was in an uproar. And what we were trying to share with the Congolese community is that uh, they should be, should have been equally outraged at any black uh, man or woman was gunned down by the, you know, the, the police in the United States. Uh, it's not just because he's from, he wasn't particular, the lawyer wasn't gunned down because he's a Congolese. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? He's gunned down, he's he's gunned down because he was black. He yes. was African. You know, the same uh, thing, uh, same reason why uh, Amadou Diallo was gunned down, you know, decades ago in, uh, in New York. So it's just so vital uh, for the African, recently arrived Africans, uh, to consult with, engage with, uh, organize with uh, Africans who have been here uh, for for generations. And that's one of the efforts we, we undertake at Friends of the Congo to try and bring, particularly the Congolese immigrant community, but also the larger African immigrant community in conversation, uh, uh, in uh, dialogue with the African community that's been here in the United States. Hey, Brother Maurice, in, in, uh, in coming down the home stretch of our conversation tonight, when as a person, as an activist, and been out here in the front and looking at the situation of our people here and on the continent, and when we see organizations like the endowment, the national endowment from democracy, the peace Corps, who has always worked closely with the CIA in African countries. And then we turn around and see the same old strategy by the West, but new faces. And when I say new faces, I'm talking about the Lloyd Austin, the Linda Thomas Greenfields, the Mike, the Michael Langley, who just took over Africa. Uh, the, the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, Gregory Meeks, when you see these people that some people that don't have the proper information look at with pride, some black people look at those people with pride because they don't realize what's going on. And maybe some of them, if they did, they wouldn't care. But what do you say as a person that has been involved, that kind of probably followed some of these people? And seeing their ascension, so uh, the so-called ascension to these posts now, what what do you say to some of our people that that that's looking at this type of uh, stuff going on? You know, that's that's a big conundrum, right? Uh, where uh, and, I, and large, I'm, lo- I'm, lo- I'm losing your voice a too, a brother. A large proportion, good of our population here. Uh, the aim for us is inclusion, mm. right? The, the first black this and the first black that, right? So the, uh, our efforts and what we're trying to do has been to educate uh, our community that we are a global people. We are 
bigger than a minority in the United States. Uh, so our, our response has been really to educate our, 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 our people. Um, you know, much like uh, Brother Obi, and you've had him on, where he engages uh, the youth, young people, uh, through plays and, you know, educating them, doing plays. He, uh, he did a play on uh, Colin Powell and uh, Kwame Ture, where he was able to very, um, through art, to share what uh, path is a revolutionary path, is a liberation path uh, that uh, youth should, should follow. Uh, so by the same token, we engage those same youth uh, in the independent schools uh, through, just as I'm speaking to you now, uh, we go in and we speak with the, with the youth there. Uh, we go into faith institutions. Uh, we go into cultural centers uh, where we, we believe that uh, it, it requires a concerted political education. But that's really what it is to, to present a, a broader picture uh, to the world uh, than uh, the narrow one that we, that we see being presented to, to our, our people here in the United States where we define uh, advances and progress as being uh, the first black this or the first black that or, uh, or going up the ladder within uh, the empire. Uh, so that, that's how we have responded uh, through political education. Richard, before we uh, wind things down, any, uh, um, go ahead. No, it's, it's, um, I just want to say, Brother Misa, Brother Maurice, it's been an honor and a pleasure to um, have this exchange and very much a update. Because I find mm-hmm. in this time you may have mentioned earlier about study groups and in that period, and and here in Philly, mm-hmm. I'm you know member of of you know ASCAD and putting together study groups and the information flow internationally as far as it relates to the continent in South America, resistance to Western domination was more pronounced than it is now. Um, and, and I think that's important to, to emphasize as you, you know, opened up and developed, um, you know, your trajectory. And, and so, and what you have shared yeah. with us was a great update. Um, and, you know, uh, uh, you know, as brother OB uh, also does and, and, and looking at the Congo and dealing with, um, American foreign policy. And I just want to, um, thank you, you know, um, for the commitment that you maintain, you and the team that you work with, uh, you know, other, um, you know, um, men and women that are engaged in this. Cause I think that a lot of times we don't see, um, people who are clear and have, um, the information that relates to the continent because it's so difficult to get it now. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Effectively now. So we need, yes. we need to rely on each other. So again, I just want to thank for this. Thank you for this exchange. Oh no, thank you, uh, thank you both for for having me on. Uh, uh, and it, it's been it's been amazing. It's gone by, you know, <laughs> uh, so fast. <laughs> uh, I, I, <laughs> you know, uh, brother, when you had reached out to me, I said, "Well, I need you to do an hour." 
And yeah. well, no, it seems like we only been on for a minute. <laughs> so uh, it's been it's been a tremendous pleasure, and and I hope uh, I can come back um, soon and and give you an update on what's uh what delve uh, you know into Congolese politics and what's unfolding in the Congo and and uh, the surrounding uh, region. Uh, certainly that, that, in fact, that's one, that's one of the things I was going to say to you. The door is always open now for you to come back, uh, share the information that, listen, that's, that's how we're going to defeat this, this, uh, this dragon, so to speak, the information, the information that we need, the weapons of information to deal with what we got to deal with. Go ahead. I'm sorry, brother Maurice. Go ahead. No, no, I was just concurring, disagreeing, just, just agreeing with what you yeah, so uh, the door is always open to you. Come back, uh, give us some updates. If, if we don't hear from you in a timely fashion, I'll be in touch with you. <laughs> and I'm All right, to, thank you. I'm going to make sure you can with you too. Oh, and, and, and listen, we right on time because it seems like your family is calling for you. <laughs> yes, my my daughter just woke up from the nap that she's taking. Brother, we'll be talking to you soon. All right now, thank Richard, you. Peace. Okay now. All right, be well. All right. Peace. Peace. Richard, uh, interesting conversation. A lot of things uh, that we talked about and some more things that we could have talked about didn't get a chance. But yeah. um, I'm just happy that he was here to to uh, give share some of the information that we, was, uh, we heard tonight. It was very, very helpful. Very, very helpful. Um, let me see this before, because, uh, um, uh, brother Clifton and, uh, uh, brother Kendo had the gathering there at the mural on Friday. Um, and they also shared with me some of the, uh, the videos I talked with brother AJ. He shared with me some of the, uh, uh the videos, some of the speeches that was given. So, uh, we'll kind of double back too and, uh, and get brother Clifton and them on to kind of talk about. Because it's, it's a fluid situation up there, Richard, yeah. and and we need to be abreast of what's going on. And our people, whether it's locally, nationally, they this situation is not just uh, uh, exclusive to to Greenberg or Westchester. Mm-hmm. This affects how they're dealing with us all over this globe. To be honest, I mean, you just heard Brother Maurice talking about what they plan to do on the continent. And in that document, Richard, it's so funny, uh, you know, in this, in this document, it's basically saying that we're looking at all Africans the same. Mm-hmm. I'll read it again for the listening audience. It's right in the uh, U.S. policy of sub-Saharan Africa. And one of the points down here, their uh, strategic objectives is engage America's African diaspora. Our African diaspora is a source of strength. It includes African-Americans, descendants of former enslaved Africans, and nearly 2 million African immigrants who maintain close family, social, and economic connections to the continent. So according to these Europeans, they look at all of you the same. But it's the propaganda that they have taught us where we're supposed to look at everybody separately and differently. But they don't. And, oh, they, gotta, and they are working to make sure that we work in their interests. Yes. That's what that it's about. Phrase in there is 
that I think it was something about strength is our strength. Look, they're saying if we don't get hold of them, this is important. It's just like it, as if we were when we were chattel slavery. We were wealth. You don't have a war strategy unless you're trying to protect wealth. Trade. <laughs> There's no need for it. And we ain't talking about we ain't talking about business people. These this is the State Department talking. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Richard, uh, we come to an end of another program, man. Oh, and we, we're going to have to double back to and follow up on a few of those other stories that we did in the past. Um, cause we did get some information from, um, and you shared with me some of the information from Mason. It's a few yeah. of these stories that we got to double back on, Richard, and bring back to the listening audience so they can kind of get updated on what has happened. And I hopefully see that the strategy they're using around leadership on the continent and in these individual countries. It's the same strategy we're dealing with when we talk about leadership, whether it be at the congressional or these counties or, or in, you know, in these states. Hmm. It's wow. the same. It's the same. <laughs> wow. Before we leave tonight, uh, let me give you the uh, lineup on time for an awakening media. Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, African Perspectives with Brother Oshi. That's 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Always interesting dialogue and guests. On African Perspectives, that's 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Uh, later on Monday evenings, and I'll, I'll keep announcing them until he comes off a hiatus. Uh, conversation Reparations, that's in Cobra's program, the first and third Mondays of the month from 9 to 10. Oh, I'm sorry. And from 8 to 9, Black Therapy Central with host Dr. Maria Combine and sister and uh, Dr. Kamal Combine on Tuesday. He's not on hiatus. On Tuesday, 8 to 10, Black Reality Think Tank would host Dr. William Rogers. On uh, Wednesday, it's our time, uh, the West Georgia Cooperative, the Black Farmers from 9 to 10, from, from, eight, from 7 to 8, I'm sorry, from 8 to 9, I'm sorry, and from 9 to 10, Black Agenda Report with Dr. David Muhammad. On Thursday, Mississippi on the move, the Black Liberation Black Liberation Movement out of Mississippi with host Patrick Lumumba, and that's from uh, 7 to 8 on Thursday on Time for an Awakening Media on Friday. Time for an Awakening is back from 8 until, and on Saturdays from 7 to 9, the Elders of Sankofa with host Brother Alfonso Watkins. I want to thank everybody for listening to the program this evening. Lively discussion as always, and we'll be back on Friday, Lord willing, to continue on this path towards an awakening. Peace. Peace. If you're driving through the country on a lazy afternoon, or you're watching your children playing after school.
Children. To save the children. 